definitely have missed you all. We've been gone for two Sundays, and uh, Adam and I had a great time away, but we definitely missed all y'all. So it's definitely good to be back. Love the changes, the new floors and everything, just as we get ready to leave. But I will enjoy them for today, and uh, they do look fantastic. So, uh, um, But all in all, the, I noticed the uh, first bathroom door actually closes now. So <laughs> both can be used safely and without fear of intrusion. Um, so all sorts of uh, good things going on here, but uh, God's doing good things in our church as well. Um, for those who may not have heard, Adam and I were able to uh, take a little... Um, trip um, with some friends out to California and uh, have tons of pictures. If anybody likes to see pictures and hear stories, I'll tell you. Otherwise, I'm not going to bore you all with them um, because that can happen. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, that's actually where we camped, um, tent camped, camp four at the base of this is upper and lower Yosemite Falls. And so Jim has a bunch of my pictures, so you'll start seeing a bunch of them. I'll try to stop. I'll try to keep from jumping up and narrating in the middle of uh, the service. Oh, you know where that was? Uh, <laughs> I've already had to squelch that a couple of times this service <laughs> as the pictures were up there. But uh, God was good. We had a great time. Um, we all made it back safely. Uh, there was a time we weren't sure of that uh, as we got over to the Pacific Coast and uh, decided to go to one little beach area. And uh, of course, hey, we've never been to the Pacific Ocean before. I'd already, uh, you know, tucked my toes in it and uh, that was good for me. We had driven all night. We got to it. We drove to Atlanta, got on the airplane. Flew to Las Vegas, got there at 10 p.m., where it was 105 degrees at 10 p.m. We got our cars and we drove eight hours across the state of, of California to the Pacific Ocean. And so we got there and started heading down the Pacific Coast Highway. And so we stopped at this beach called Pfeiffer Beach and a beautiful place. I got a lot of pictures if you want to see them. But uh, I was passed out at that point. I'm like, well, I'm going to set a little air couch. It's a great little thing. You don't have to blow it up. You sort of catch the wind and it inflates and you roll it up and then you're laying there. So about five seconds, I had a little couch set up and I was on the beach, passed out cold. I said, you guys have fun. Wake me up. Don't leave without me. Um, and uh, so some point after that, I don't know how long it was. I was three sheets to the wind for sure. And uh, Jerry, who was with us and his two brothers, Mark and Jordan, uh, Mark comes up and says, Carl, I'm sorry. We need this. Jerry's in trouble. We need this. I'm like... Am I having some sort of nightmare? Am I getting punked, pranked? What is going on? And they're very serious. They throw me off and they take my little air couch, which is not a life-saving device by any means. Well, it's not intended as a life-saving device. Uh, they may need to rebrand that. I uh, thought about sending a little letter and a, a thing about this story. But uh, So we look out and, again, we're on the beach. Uh, it's not really a swimming beach. It's sort of a rocky beach. There is a sandy area that goes in, but out there are several rocky islands maybe a couple hundred yards out. And uh, so I found out later, Jerry and one of his brothers had decided just to wade, maybe waist deep into the water. Um, but these waves in the Pacific Ocean are nothing like the Atlantic Ocean. I don't know how the Pacific, which means peaceful, got its name because we didn't see anything peaceful about that entire ocean the time we were there. It was a very powerful ocean, uh, very cold. The waves were extremely large and uh, it was like a totally, it like it wasn't even, Atlantic was, seemed like Lake Norman compared to the Pacific Ocean, my first experience. But uh, so Jerry and his brother were out there and about waist deep and along comes a, a wave they were not expecting, just kind of knocked them off their feet and took them out that quick, out um, beyond where they could stand and right into this large rocky island, probably the size of this house. And uh, I've got pictures of it. You see waves coming, crashing into it from the other side, just exploding and completely covering this entire rocky outcropping. And 
So as I'm trying to get the sleep out of my eyes and sit up, I see uh, Jerry's brother Mark waiting out there with my air couch, um, going out there towards him. Jordan has made it back somehow miraculously. He was broken off of the rock and the wave pushed him back in providentially. But Jerry's still out there. Every wave just covering him completely. We can't even see him between the waves. And then he's like catching a breath and turning to find out he's holding on to seaweed. The rock he can't even grip onto. He's holding on to seaweed literally for dear life. And so Mark is swimming out there and doesn't know what he's going to do. He's got this thing though and it's, a, it's about four feet long. Again, not a life-saving device, but it floats. And uh, so he goes out and the waves knock him as he's just holding on. And he's able to get it out there eventually. And Jerry's able to let go of the seaweed. And it's long enough, actually probably better than a typical life-saving device because it had the length to actually, so, so he didn't get right up against the rocks. And Jerry lashes onto it. Can't hardly even hold on to it. And they make it back into shore. Um, and Jerry's like, I thought I was dead. I, I thought my time had come. And uh, I was like, I'm really glad it wasn't because that would have really put a damper on our trip. <laughs> 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 now, I thought about that much later. Uh, <laughs> but people have asked me, hey, what was your favorite part of the trip, Carl? What was your favorite part of the trip? And I haven't had the heart to tell them. My favorite part was seeing Jerry standing on shore alive. That was my favorite part of the trip. Um, but uh, it was a, it was a, a scary moment. Um, and in that time, you know, there was one life, one, float, one inflatable, one person using it. And what, I could do nothing except pray. God, help them. God, bring them back to us. That was all I could do. He was at the point of death. It looked like he was hopeless. I didn't know. He's like, I, I just watered so much water. I didn't know if I was even going to get my next breath because that water was just so overpowering. He said, I didn't know when I was going to get that seaweed was going to break loose and I was just going to get washed out to the ocean. Um, it was a pretty terrifying moment. But uh, providential maybe that I had this uh, passage of, of Luke come my way to preach this time because um, a man here, um, is near the point of death. And uh, it certainly resonates with me a little more than it had before. Um, so maybe uh, sharing that story, you, we can uh, read this with a little bit new eyes. Uh, but we are going to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 7. So if you have your Bible or a device with the Bible on there, I invite you to find your way to Luke chapter 7. We'll be looking at the first 10 verses today. Um, but uh, yeah, so kind of just wrap up the story. Everybody made it back. Um, Jerry thanked his brother for literally saving his life. One of the standers by came over and was like, man, you're an effing hero, dude. I can't believe you just did that. It was literally a, uh, a heroic moment. It was um, visible to all, obvious to all those around that uh, there was real danger in the water at that moment. And uh, none of us really got back in the water anymore. Did we get back in? I don't think we ever got back in the ocean after that, did we, Adam? Was that the last time any of us got in the ocean? I think that was the last time any of us got in the ocean. We got in the creek a few times, but I uh, felt that was a breeze. Although one of the creeks we saw was probably more intimidating than the ocean. Anyway, I got pictures. I, I can show you. Um, but uh, we're going to look today um, in a sermon I've entitled Marvelous Faith. And so I invite you to go ahead and stand as we read our text today from Luke chapter 7. And the first 10 verses, it should be up here. Oh, wow, look at that picture of those stars. Oh, I wonder where that was taken. <laughs> All right, so uh, try not to be distracted by the background, and let's uh, read the text together. I'm going to stand over here so we can follow the slides together as well. All right, after he, that's Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, 
who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and your mercy. Um, we thank you that you are our good, good Father. We thank you that <clears throat> all that we need in this life, Lord, you provide for us. Um, we thank you for this text of your word, Lord. Uh, as we look into it and study it, God, may you open our eyes and our hearts, Lord, to receive the truth. Uh, may we have um, ears to hear and hearts willing and eager to obey, Lord. May you show us ways in which we are not yet conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. And may you change us to be more like him for our time spent here today. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so again, today's sermon title, Marvelous Faith. Pretty straightforward account. Um, we just read it. Before we dig in deeper, I do want to address um, one thing that people have sometimes said. If you look in the account in Matthew, it's found in chapter 8, and Matthew's account reads a little differently. And some people have said, oh, it's a contradiction to the Bible. It's a contradiction. Ah, see, the Bible says it's contradicting. It's not. But the Matthew account reads as though the centurion was face-to-face -face with Jesus. And so the centurion said, and Jesus said, and this kind of thing. And so I want to address these things because you may come across someone who accuses. And so you believe the Bible is so full of errors. I just want to address these things whenever they come up along. So I won't take much time. But I will say that we see the detailed description here. And recently, actually tomorrow, my son Adam has a birthday, big number 14. And uh, traditionally in our home, for the last couple of kids, when they turn 14, they would get a phone. Um, that may not, I'm not saying that's when they should. I'm just saying that's when they do. They kind of start doing things with themselves, or with themselves, with other friends. They're a little bit more from the house, so we kind of need to be caught in touch with them a little bit more. And so before our trip, he actually got a phone. And uh, so he got a, few, a few, couple weeks early. But uh, one of the things the, the kids don't realize is the, the benefit to us of them having a phone is it's easier for us to get a hold of them. And instead of having to collar and scream and where are you, where are you, we just ring the phone. And if they don't answer their phone or answer a text, then it gets turned off and nobody likes that. Um, but prior to Adam getting his phone, if I was at work and I wanted to get a message to Adam, I would probably call Alexa because Anna's probably not going to answer. <laughs> um, so I might call Alexa and say, hey, tell Adam that... He's been working too hard. He needs to lay off the chores a little bit. Go watch some video games. I mean, he's just so diligent. He's working so hard, I know. So just tell him if he wants to take a little nap or whatever, just tell him to chill out for a couple hours. Then he can go back to the chores that he's wanting to do. 
All right, so then Alexa goes and says, Adam, turn off the mower, put the weed away, get in that house, cool off a little bit, and chill. Now, who told Adam to do that? I did. But did I actually tell Adam to do that? No. Alexa actually physically, but she spoke on my authority. I told him. So you can tell that story two ways. You can say, um, you know, Alexa could relate the story to Rebecca and say, yeah, dad told Adam to, you know, stop and knock off the chores for a little while. Would that be accurate? Yeah. Okay. Well, she says, dad's at work. How could he have told him? Okay, 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 yeah. Actually, dad told me and I told Adam. Same story, just related two different ways. Okay, so I think that's kind of what we have in the two accounts. Um, just wanted to kind of cover that, that this is not something we don't know about. <gasps> really? You think there's an error? I never heard of that before. So I don't want you to be aware that the gospel writers recorded things in slightly different um, ways, their own personalities to it, their own personal accounts based on their investigations and their recollections of things. But, uh, you know, subtle differences like that are easily understood by those who have faith and desire to understand. For those who want to find fault, you can always find fault. Amen. So having said that, let's jump right in. And we see that uh, after Jesus has finished his, um, one of his sermons, I don't believe it was the Sermon on the Mount, but it was certainly one of his uh, um, times of speaking to the disciples and to those around. Um, and he finishes that and he heads to Capernaum, which is sort of his base of operations. We think that's probably where he lived during most of his ministry after he was um, refused at Nazareth, at his original hometown. We think he kind of set up shop in Capernaum. So he entered there. And uh, this is where we find a centurion. Who under 16 knows what a centurion was? Anybody under 16 know what a centurion was? No? Nobody? Nobody knows what a centurion was. Interesting. We're going to learn something today then. All right, how about anybody then? What's, who is a centurion? Yes. Roughly, yeah, that's what the name means. He was a, he was a Roman soldier um, of some authority, um, sort of like maybe a captain in our army. You know, I don't know. I've heard that he was maybe the highest non-commissioned officer. I don't know that Rome necessarily had divisions like that, but that's sort of how it was interpreted to me. But the name, strictly speaking, means, yeah, like we have century, um, the centurion, 100 years for a century, and 100 men in a centurion. It didn't have to be exactly 100, but that was generally the size of a group of men that the centurion would be over. And so, not a Jew, of course, um, not uh, probably a, a follower of Jesus at all. But we see from the text that he was um, friendly to the Jewish nation. But he was definitely a Roman soldier and certainly a, a part of the machine that was oppressing the Jews and the nation of Israel. But this man, he uh, had a servant who was sick at the point of death. And his servant was highly valued to him. Now... When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking them to come and heal his servant. So he obviously had a close relationship with the Jews. We see how over in verse 5, where the Jews are talking to Jesus, and they kind of relay some of the stuff that this centurion has done for them or with them. Or It's hard to say exactly what's going on, but it says, listen, this guy, he loves the Jewish nation. He's the one who built us our synagogue. You know, kind of like, hey, when you go into the church... You know, on, on Saturday, you'll see his name on a plaque right out there on the outside of the building. He's the one who either donated funds or signed men. You know, at some point he had a, a, he was instrumental in constructing the synagogue here in Capernaum. Not really typical for a Roman soldier. Uh, so obviously this man uh, 
he may have been, you know, other places in Scripture we see some Roman um, citizens, even other centurions who are described as um, God-fearers, those who believed in the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jewish God, and may have proselytized on some level, um, certainly followed in some way. We see several of these people become converted throughout the book of Acts. Uh, we don't know all the details about that, but we can see that this man <clears throat> respects the Jewish nation and has a, a faith and respect for Jesus himself. So based on that, um, he knows these Jewish leaders and he knows that Jesus, this man who has healed people, who has a reputation now for healing people, is a Jew. And so he says, hey, would you guys go on my behalf and ask him if he would come and heal my servant? So that's what happens. And um, as we see, they go. And this is a, a beautiful example of people petitioning Jesus, essentially praying, as we would see it today, for others who won't pray for themselves. This servant may have, he's at the point of death. He probably couldn't pray for himself at this point. Uh, depending on how, you know, the nature of his sickness, he may have been conscious, he may have been unconscious and then totally unable to, to cry out to Jesus for help. He certainly couldn't probably exercise any sort of faith or anything like that. We'll touch on this a little bit later. But we see this as a, a great example of the centurion petitioning Jesus on behalf of his servant. And then we see the Jewish leaders further petitioning Jesus on behalf of the centurion. So sometimes when people ask me, hey, you're a pastor, would you pray for me? Sometimes I want to correct them a little bit and say, look, I'm a pastor, but I'm not like a, the Pope or the priest. Or I mean, we pray to Jesus, so direct, you know, you can pray. But I, I think we need to be eager to pray for people. Um, people ask us to pray for them. I think we should be eager to, to do that and to, to minister to them in that way. Uh, I think we see a, a clear biblical example here that Jesus answered those prayers. He went with them. Okay, um, we see in uh, verse 6, Jesus went with them in response to this. We get ahead of myself, though, because the interesting thing is we see the Jews come and they want to build a case for the guy, right? They, they almost come to Jesus almost like a quid pro quo where, hey, Jesus, maybe you can come heal this guy because he's done a lot of good stuff for your people. And so you probably could do him a solid. It'd probably be, you know, fair square, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it just shows how we oftentimes misunderstand Jesus and God's love, mercy, compassion. We, we think we've got to earn to deserve. But that's not the way the Bible teaches. You know, Jesus doesn't say he went with them because of their words. He went with them because of, they don't see him asking, well, how much money did he give to the synagogue? Is it a nice synagogue? Did he skimp on the corners? No? Okay. So, you say he loves our nation. I mean, how much does he... No, we don't see any of that. Okay? That's what they're presenting. But Jesus doesn't, you know, have to qualify the guy's request. The man prays, petitions him, the people petition for him, and Jesus answers. It's not based on these works. That was what the Jews built their case on, but that's not what Jesus' actions are based upon. And that's the same way for us. We don't have to worry about, well, I haven't given enough money to the church, or maybe I don't love the church enough. Or, you know, that's not how we come to Jesus. It's not, there's never a quid pro quo. We come, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. That's the only way we can come to him, is in faith. So as Jesus is on his way, 
we see that a, the, a thought occurs to the centurion. I don't know exactly what goes into his thought process, what makes him think of this. Um, you know, maybe his servant was like the main house guy, and he's like, oh, this house is a wreck because the guy's laid up. I can't receive Jesus into this place. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. But somehow he encourages himself, says, listen, I don't really feel comfortable. I don't feel like Jesus, I'm not really worthy to have Jesus come here. And so he sends another message. He's like, hey guys, listen, I know they're probably on the way. Go tell them, listen, I, they don't need to come. You know, I don't need to see them. I don't need to meet them. He doesn't need to come. If he just gives the word, it'll be done. And I'm not really worthy to have him under my house. Not sure all that goes in there, but what is very interesting is if we look at other Jesus' other healings, is this the way Jesus healed other people? No. Did he sit over on a rock somewhere and say, bring me some names, bring me some names. Joe, healed. Susie, healed. Or did he lay hands on people and touch people? And speak to people. It was a very face-to-face -face kind of thing. This had never been. We never see a healing like this before. Okay. How did Centurion know he could heal that way? He had faith. He said Jesus teaches with authority. He heals with. He has authority over evil spirits and diseases and all these things. I understand authority. He doesn't need to be here to do that. You know, he's not limited. His authority is not limited. Uh, his range of what he can see or what he can touch or what can hear his voice. This man has true authority. Therefore, all he has to do is give the word and it will be done. Now, I imagine, I don't know, I don't want to put, I don't want to put this necessarily off on the Jewish leaders, but I imagine if he had said that to the Jewish leaders, they said, no, 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 that's not how it's done. We've got to bring Jesus here. He'll see you. You'll make a petition. He'll lay your hands on you. He'll, he'll speak something. It may not, but that's, that's how it's done. So you, you just sit still. Let us do it. We know how to do it. He didn't know any better. Nobody had told him that's not the way it's done. Right? So he's like, listen, I just, well, here's what I know about Jesus. He's powerful and he's got authority. Therefore, I don't need anything more than that. There was nobody there except his people who could have corrected him. They weren't going to because they were under his authority. So it's interesting that the centurion understood what Jesus was capable of in a different way. And sometimes that's, sometimes it's good to approach the scriptures, to approach situations with, without our church ears, without our church eyes, you know, in a fresh way. In a way, what is the Bible saying to me? What is being revealed here in Scripture? Not what do I think it says, because sometimes we'll do that. We'll open up our CBR, our C and Jesus together. Well, oh, I know this passage. Skim, 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 skim. Yeah, that was great. Put it down. And uh, what did we miss? What did we miss when we do it that way? I encourage we need to come to things without the baggage of experience sometimes and just say, what is the Bible saying to me? Holy Spirit, speak to me through this word. Open my eyes to understand it in a, in a new and a better and a clearer way. And he's faithful to do that. The other thing is the centurion really recognized Jesus' authority in a deeper way than the Jewish leaders. Okay? So he, he realizes, you know, the nature of authority, I guess, in a different way than what the Jewish leaders did. And he understood it, and he, he brought that in and said, well, this must be who Jesus is. This is who I understand him to be. You know, this is what I've heard about him. This is what, I've, what I know of him. So, therefore, this is who he is. 
And I would dare say that he most likely saw Jesus as Lord in a different way than most other people that day. Because most of the people that day didn't really understand the power of authority and what that really meant. And so what does that mean for us today? If Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he had the same authority then, and he has that authority now, that's something to be respected. You know, a lot of people want to say, oh, well, Jesus is your best friend. Jesus, Jesus is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. But let's not forget that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And with that comes a responsibility on us to submit, okay, a healthy dose of, of, let's call it fear, okay, a recognition of who he is and the power that he has. That's something the centurion recognized that I think the other leaders did not. I think there's a, uh, a quick lesson in the, in the authority in general with the words that the centurion used in verse 8. We look. He says, For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. It's interesting, he, didn't, he starts with, I'm a man set under authority. He didn't start with, you know, I'm kind of a big deal. I've got people under me. You know, I tell them what to do and they do it. I don't have to worry about it because I'm a big deal. He doesn't start with that. He starts with, look, I'm a man under authority. And I think there's a subtle, quick lesson for us here that those who are fit for authority recognize they are under authority. Say it again. Those who are fit for authority must recognize that they themselves are under authority. Whatever arena you're looking at, because you look at government leaders who think that they're it and there's no authority above them, won't be long before they become tyrants. Okay? Whether they recognize the authority of a constitution or the authority of a divine, of God in the, the Bible, they've got to recognize that they are limited by some other authority greater than themselves. Otherwise, they're going to become a tyrant. You know, in church leaders, you know, if pastors, you know, begin to think that they're the, the, the stop, the end of the authority, and there's no one above them, the Bible talks about those being wolves in sheep's clothing, coming in and doing serious damage to the church. And we've seen that in the American church particularly. We as pastors always have to recognize that we are under shepherds. We are shepherded by the great shepherd. Love the verse you start off with today. The Lord is our shepherd. Okay? And while we have been given responsibility to shepherd this flock, we are under his leadership. May we never step out from under that. In a family... The family leaders, God has ordained that the man would lead in the, in the home. Okay? And if he thinks he's it, then it's going to turn to abuse, okay? whether physical or emotional. Um, but it's going to turn to abuse, and he's going to miss his entire purpose in that family. To love his wife as Christ loved the, fir- the, the church. To be a picture of, the, the, of Jesus and his bride, the church. Those fit for authority must recognize that they themselves are under authority. <clears throat> so we look and we see verse 9 when Jesus heard these things he marveled at him can you imagine doing something that causes Jesus to go whoa hey you guys see this you guys hear hey 
Come here. L listen. Say that again. Do that again. Can you imagine Jesus Christ reacting that way to something you did or said? I mean, not in a bad way, not in a punitive way. I can think, I can imagine that. <laughs> Whoa, what did he do? Y'all guys coming, I gotta straighten this guy out. No, I can understand that. But in an amazing way like this, there's only two times the Bible uses this um, adjective of Jesus Christ, that he marveled, he was marveled at something. One is here, about this man's belief. Anybody know what the other one was? In Mark 6, when he marveled at the unbelief of the nation. So only two times was Jesus really surprised by people's actions. One was by the extent of this man's belief. The other was the extent of um, Israel's unbelief in Mark 6. But no, he's, he's totally amazed. He turns around, the crowd that follows him says, Listen, I've got to tell you, I've not even found in Israel. This is a Roman, Gentile, pagan, if you want to call it that even. Certainly not been raised up in the church. Certainly doesn't have any history of what God has done for the nation of Israel throughout history. Has no exposure to any of that. But I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And of course, verse 10, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. But this whole idea of this marveling faith, this marvelous faith that this guy had. Um, we're going to camp out on this for just a few minutes. And we're going to kind of break it up into two separate sections um, because one, I think, is an area where we have error that can be creeping in, and I want to help us with that. And another one is a challenge for us to, um, to have this kind of faith. So, first off, if we look at, you know, again, this idea of these people are petitioning Jesus on behalf of the servant near to death. Uh, I think it's not too big a leap to, to call that a prayer for this person. So, if we talk about this prayer of faith that this man had. The centurion had this prayer of faith um, that led to healing for the servant. And we can look in other places in the Bible it talks about praying in faith for healing. Um, James 5.15 is probably the best example of this, that uh, if any of you are sick, let the elders pray over them and they'll be healed. Pretty straightforward passage. And it goes on to talk about being forgiven of sins and there's some of the context. I don't have the time to execute all that, but I do want to touch on today this idea of a prayer of faith or healing, um, faith healings and this sort of things because the Bible does speak to it. We've just seen two examples, one here in Luke and the one I quoted in James. And I don't want us to be misled, but I don't want us to miss out on um, God's plan for us either. So as we talk about the praying of faith and we see this man you know, was healed and we talk about James, the, the expectation of being healed. How do we understand this? What does this mean? Is there are those who say, listen, you need to pray in faith and God will heal you 100% guaranteed if you have enough faith. And that's a real heavy burden to put on people because how do you know if you have enough faith? How do you know? Well, it's really hard to know. I guess if the guy gets better, you had enough faith. If he doesn't, you didn't. And then they'll, it's oftentimes these people who will take advantage um, will then say, well, you need to demonstrate your faith. And how do they want you to demonstrate your faith? Money. They'll tell you, listen, you've got to demonstrate your faith. Faith without works is dead. So if you're praying in faith, you've got to prove that you have enough faith. Now, you, can, you take the $10 seed of faith and you plant it in the fertile soil of our ministry and God will cause it to grow, Right? hundred dollars and then they'll say but if you really need an answer to prayer if you really need then don't take a ten dollar seat of faith you take a twenty a hundred a five hundred dollar seat of faith and show how much faith you have 
Is that ever shown in Scripture? Absolutely not. People will prey on people's desires to follow Scripture and their lack of understanding about God's workings in their life. And I want to help us with this just for a few minutes today. Okay? It's true. The Bible does talk about faith without works is dead. Okay? What does the Bible tell us? It says we are told to pray for healing. Okay? We are told to do that. But was everyone in the New Testament healed? No. There were people who were sick for a long time. Okay? How do we reconcile these two things? Did supernatural healing occur? Yes. But not everyone was supernaturally healed. Some people were encouraged to use natural or practical measures for their physical ailments. Paul told Timothy, you know, drink a little wine for your stomach. That's what they had to treat it. And he didn't say, well, just be healed. Let me come lay hands. He said, no, do this. Do this practical step to help with your physical ailments. How, how do we understand all these things? How do we bring them together? Some illness, as revealed in Scripture, was explicitly for a divine purpose. Okay? So, I want us to try to get our hands around all these things. And I wish maybe we'll do come back and do a longer study on this. This is just a quick little insert here, so I don't want to not do it justice. And if you have questions, we'll have time for questions in a few minutes, uh, or we can revisit it on a maybe a midweek service or something. But this idea of a prayer of faith—it's not a guaranteed prescription. Do this, and 100% you're going to be cured, or whatever the situation may be. <clears throat> I'm speaking in physical, but. The, the principle can extend beyond physical means, can expand to many other situations. But it's not that. It's not some sort of sacred ritual that we perform. If we pray with enough right words or pray with enough fervency or, or pray with enough faith even, that, that as God's got, God has to do it. He has to answer. You know, we finally got and finally said the right combination of words for this, you know, Christian ritual to take place and twisted God's arm and he had to answer. It's not like that. Prayer of faith is an attitude that looks to Jesus first for help. With a heart open to correction, asking Him to meet our needs, while still availing ourselves of reasonable means for aid. Real faith in a prayer expects a yes, but real faith can endure a no. Okay, it expects a yes when we pray. We expect God to answer. But if we're trusting in faith, we can endure a no. Why? Because our faith is not in the perfection of our request. It's in the perfection of God's answer. Our faith is not in us that we're asking the right thing. Our faith is in God that He knows what's best. He will do what's best to ultimately bring our good and His glory. It may not look exactly like we lay it out, but when we pray as best we understand it in line with God's will, then we expect a yes. But there's always that humility. The, the biblical Christian prayer of faith always says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Always. And if that's, your, if that's how you, you know, uh, um, you, uh, in, cost, in, in case your entire prayer in that sort of you know, concept that nevertheless not my will but yours be done then God's always going to answer 
So we pray as best we know how, but we recognize that God's plan may differ from ours and that He always knows best. And so we pray in faith, expecting a yes, hoping for a yes, but ready to endure a no. Now, as I read this story, it's a great story, great outcome, everything turned out fantastic. This man had marvelous faith, right? What if you're reading this and you're like, wow, I wish I had faith like that. I know I don't have faith like that. You know, I, I would never be able to just sort of fire and forget a prayer. Yeah, Jesus, just say it and go. It's all done. I don't have to worry about it. You know, no, I'll be like, oh, Jesus, you can do it. Are you can do it. Is it working out? Is it working out? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think how things are working out. I want to watch it every second of every minute, every second of every minute, and just see how everything's playing out. And if it's not working out, oh, no, no, we're getting off course. Please, Jesus, please help, please help. You know, I don't have that faith like this guy had. I wish I did. Can we get it? Or is this like one in a, one in a trillion? Only this guy. Nobody else is going to have faith like this. Can we, can we get more faith? That's what I'm really asking. Or can we get more faith? How? How? That's the question. How do we get faith? Where does faith come from? The Lord, hearing God, okay? So I'm going to give us three points. If you're taking notes, you get three points. First, faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Clear teaching Scripture, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So if you want to increase your faith, I would ask you, are you consistently reading the Word? Are you consistent? Oh, I've read the Bible. No, I have you. Are you? Okay, you, you, you have faith. You're a believer. You're a Christian. I know you have heard the word. If you want to grow your faith, are you hearing the word? Are you renewing your mind daily with the washing of the word, being transformed by that process on a day-to-day basis? I can tell you what, if you're not in the word, you're not hearing a lot of faith language from the world around us. Right? So we've got to be in the word. You know, as a church, we have laid out our intention to follow the Seeing Jesus Together reading plan. Um, I hope everybody here knows what book we're in. Um, what New Testament book are we in, church? John. John. <laughs> and Old Testament book is Ezra. We just have finished Psalm 83. Okay. No problem. Yeah, it's easy. That's fine. Yeah, no, no judgment. But if you didn't know, you're like, I don't know. Well, if you're struggling with faith, that's step number one. You've got to be in the Word consistently. You know, once you've been around church for a while, this is something that's easy to let by because you open it up and, oh, I know this passage. Oh, I know this passage. Oh, I already know that one. I already touched on that. But we need to be in it every day, coming at it. Show me, take off this baggage that I have and let me see your Word afresh and anew. Spirit of living God, fall fresh on me. That's number one. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. Number two, we see action reveals and strengthens our faith. Okay, James is replete with this idea that faith without works is dead. You say you have faith without your works, great. I will show you my faith by my works. Hebrews 11, the... um, 
hall of faith of the Old Testament people, every one of those people, by faith, they did something. They took action by their faith. Okay? Um, I remember... Uh, uh, we have any Indiana Jones fans in here? Particularly the old ones? Yeah, one, two, and three. Uh, yeah, number three was, was the last great one. Um, Temple of Doom was okay. It was number two. But the Last Crusade was the, was the, was the best one, I think. Um, and Indy at the end, he's trying to save his dad's life. And uh, so he got this cryptic message and everything. And, uh, you know, only the penitent man may pass. He has to kneel like in prayer to dodge the, you know. Um, so he gets past that. But the last challenge is what? Anybody remember what the last challenge was? No, he found the grail, but, but to get to the grail. Leap of faith. Leap of faith. That's what it was. It was a leap of faith. All right? And it comes to this chasm. And there's no way across. And you can always see all the way down. He's like, what in the world? This is impossible. But his dad's dying. He's got to get over there to the Holy Grail. So what does he do? He does what he's been told. And he takes a leap of faith and he steps off that into the bottomless abyss. And what happens? He lands on a step about six inches down. It's an optical illusion or something. He couldn't see it, but it's there. Now, what about the next step? Was it easier or harder? It was easier because he already stepped into the abyss and realized, oh, okay, I didn't die. Okay, maybe there's something to this thing. Okay, well, I'd step once off into the abyss. Why not do it again? Hey, that worked too. And next thing, so, you know, this is how faith is strengthened. When we take action based on what we say we believe. So question number two for you, are you consistently walking out your faith? Are you consistently walking out your faith? You know, again, as a church, I'm thankful God has provided ways for us to do this through our evangelism outreaches, um, giving out Bibles, making conversations with people. But that, that's going to give you a little bit of faith. We need more. If you want more faith, you need to be walking out your faith consistently. Action builds on action. And as you take action and you realize, hey, God is faithful here. What he said was true. I can trust him for another step. That first step's the hardest. That first one is the hardest. And once you take that and begin walking out your faith, your faith will grow. You're going to trust God more and more. Because look back. I mean, He has proven faithful so many times. The Bible's full of examples. Our own lives are full of examples. You know, we get distracted. All the urgent things right in front of us. But, 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 there's an abyss right here. God hasn't brought you all this way for to fail. Step out. Step out. That first step's the hardest. But He's going to be with you that one and every other one. So... Point number two. Point number one, faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Are you consistently reading the Word? Point two, action reveals and strengthens faith. Are you consistently walking out your faith? And number three, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Are you consistently asking Him for greater faith? Maybe you know my favorite story in the Bible is the man who had the child who um, was possessed of a spirit and the disciples couldn't cast him out. And so Jesus comes, down, comes along and says, what's going on? And this man says, listen, if you're able, please cast him out. And Jesus is like, if I'm able, all things are possible with God. And so the man's like, I believe, help my unbelief. He says, I do believe. And he asked Jesus for greater faith. 
He asked Jesus to help him with the areas he does not believe in. Uh, uh, urgent, you know, sincere prayer for faith. And what does Jesus do? He heals his son. Do you think that strengthened his faith or weakened his faith? Absolutely. Jesus answered the man's prayer. So, number three, are you consistently praying for greater faith? You know, I think a lot of times we have this idea that faith is something we've got to build up in ourselves. We've got to well it up. And I said before, you know, if, if I was that man, that parent, and Jesus said, look, all things are possible to those who believe, I'd say, all right, I don't believe enough, so I'll work on that. I'll, I'll come back when i got more faith. I don't know how I'm going to get it, but I'll muster it up somehow. Maybe I'll give more money to prove how much faith I have. You know, maybe I'll do more good works to show how much faith I have. All you need to do is ask Jesus. That's all a man had to do was, listen, I don't have it. I hear you, I believe you, but I need to believe more. Give me more faith. So if we want to have a marvelous faith, we want to grow our faith. God has given us a measure of faith, but if we want to grow on that, we need to be consistently reading the Word. We need to be consistently walking out our faith. And we need to be consistently praying for greater faith. And I don't know if Centurion did any or all those things. I just know those are biblical principles for us today. The Centurion may have been one in a million on his own. You know, it could have been. Well, um, we'll find out that when we get to heaven. We can ask all those questions about that. Okay? Maybe God gave him a greater measure of faith for us where he was. But the fact is, where we are in our lives today... We can have that kind of marvelous faith. We can have faith that make people, and even Jesus, say, Wow, can you believe how much Convergence Church believes, how much great their faith is? Look at what they're doing. Look at how much their faith is showing out to those around us. That can be it. Shekinah, you have something to say? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so two, two quick answers to your question. One, the restriction on going into Gentiles' houses, that was an added thing. That was not something in the, the strict Torah, the law. That was one of the things that, you know, many of the 600 laws extra added, that was one of those. So Jesus would not have been breaking the law had he come into the man's house. Um, but certainly, you know, yeah, that, that certainly makes sense to me. You know, we're not revealed. To, again, a lot of these questions we'll have to answer in glory. But, uh, yeah, for certainly I think that... Uh, you know, that is a part of his faith. You know, he was willing to even break the social taboo in a sense. Um, before we wrap up, does anybody have any questions on this idea of faith, particularly the prayer of faith, anything like that? Do anybody have any questions on any of those things? Obviously, we could do a, a series of sermons on that type of stuff, but I know we just touched on it briefly today. If anybody has any burning, urgent questions, we'll take a quick moment, but otherwise we'll move on. All right, well, I hope this has been helpful to us. Um, we're going to get ready to move into the time of response. If anyone would like to respond in some way, Ask Brian to come up and get ready for the Lord's Supper. But uh, this idea of marvelous faith, it, it, I don't think it's just for the centurion. I think that uh, all of us can, can live lives of, marvelous, lives of marvelous faith. And if we don't feel like we have that, and I don't think any of us probably feel like we do. I think all of us wish we had more faith. But the Bible does tell us how to strengthen our faith. And let's not be lazy in pursuing that. Let's be diligent in pumping up our faith working out our faith, um, strengthening our faith. Uh, you know, I don't know where you're on your life. Maybe you're having a, a struggle right now in which you need a strong faith. If you're not right now, you will. You will have that at some point. And um, the best time to strengthen your faith is when you're not in the fire. 
but uh, it's best to have the fire be able to reveal your faith. But sometimes when there's no urgency, when there's no hard time, and it's hard to be serious about it, hard to take it and to be uh, consistent with it. And so let's ask God to help us even in those ways. Let's ask each other to, be, to keep us accountable and to be faithful in reading the Word consistently, walking out our faith, and praying for greater faith.